Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Bruno Rodriguez. Based in Luxembourg, Bruno is an economist and statistician who works with the Luxembourg Ministry of Higher Education and Research. You can follow him at, on, on Twitter at brodriguezco, and that's Rodriguez with an S, on Mastodon at fostodon.org slash at brodriguezco, and check out his website at brodriguez.co. Bruno is the author of the LeanPub book, Building Reproducible Analytical Pipelines with R. In the book, Bruno shows readers how to build reproducible analytical pipelines to output consistent, high-quality data products using R, GitHub, and Docker. In this interview, we're going to talk about Bruno's background and career, professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a blogger and uh, self-published author. So thank you very much, Bruno, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Uh, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, where you grew up, how you found your way into uh, getting a PhD in economics and into the job you have and uh, into writing books. Okay, so uh, I, I was really looking forward to that question, actually, because it's the opportunity for me to, um, to yeah, to, to tell a story that I think uh, will resonate with a lot of people like me. Um, so it all started <laughs> in 1980 when my father decided to move to Luxembourg. So my, my parents are Portuguese. And they decided to move to Luxembourg. And Luxembourg is this uh, very tiny central northern European country switched, sandwiched between France and Germany and Belgium. And um, and 14%, actually almost 15% of the population is Portuguese still today. So it's a, it's a huge, it's the biggest minority, let's say. And um, and I, I do, I'm saying this because it's it's real it's really important because uh, when so I, I was born here I grew up here in Luxembourg, which is this country uh, tiny country with three official languages French Luxembourg is and German Portuguese obviously is not one even though it's you can hear it on the streets a lot um, and, and it was quite interesting because uh, so my household was uh, Portuguese we talked Portuguese we ate Portuguese we watched Portuguese TV. And then whenever I stepped out the door, uh, I was confronted to a very different world, even though that's the world I was born in. And it was quite important because um, Luxembourg is, is very well known for its financial place, for its financial sector. A lot of banks, lots of insurances, uh, lots of these kind of companies that, that do um, all batters of, of you know, fiscal optimization and things like that. And... Um, I was born in a, let's say, quite modest home. So uh, my parents just told me I had to study. That's whatever. They, that's always what they told me. You have to study. You have to study. Uh, you cannot uh, end up like us, uh, minimum wage workers, and um, you know, having to work all your life. Basically, you have to study because that's the uh, that's the ticket to have a you know a, a comfortable life. And so I, I studied. I just studied. I studied. 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 But I didn't really have. Um, uh, in my network, let's say, any people that, that also studied or people that went to university or, or things like that. And most Portuguese people in, in Luxembourg, uh, the overwhelming majority are also from the same kind of um, very humble uh, origins, let's say. Uh, these are all people that basically uh, left Portugal right after the revolution, uh, because until the 70s, Portugal was a, a dictatorship. And once this was over, well, people went abroad for... Uh, better lives and better opportunities. And um, so because I didn't really know, you know, I I knew I had to study, but I didn't really know what. I decided, well, you know, Luxembourg has a lot of banks, has a, a huge financial, you know, sector. So I'll I'll study economics, whatever. I like math. So 
Um, I actually wanted to study physics, but I thought, no, I will never find a job here in Luxembourg studying physics. Um, so I'll go for economics, whatever that is, uh, you know, banks, economy, whatever, I'll just study that. And so I started studying that really just because Luxembourg was this, you know, country with a lot of banks. I and mean, it's quite, maybe not a very valid reason, but at the time, you know, if you don't really have that network around you to kind of guide you, well, that's, you have to do some decision. And so I studied economics and it turns out that when I was studying economics, the uh, things that I liked most were uh, statistics, econometrics and uh, data mining. We had a course on data mining that I found fascinating, which basically could have, uh, nowadays, I'm, nowadays you could name that course uh, like artificial intelligence because it, it basically was that it was the very basic techniques from artificial intelligence, but that that's like the, the introduction to it was like k-means and all these kind of methods that that form the basis of uh, of artificial intelligence. I found this fascinating, and so I I, I went more towards quantitative methods, and um, so I studied econometrics, I studied statistics, and then another very important event uh, <laughs> that seems uh, quite random but was that my parents bought me a laptop for university mm. that came with Win Windows Vista. And I had a lot of problems with Windows Vista. And I knew a friend, an internet friend, uh, we chatted like on a video game forum. And he told me, hey, you should try this uh, thing called Linux. I said, well, okay, why not? Let's, let's install Ubuntu. He, he advised me I use Ubuntu, the very simple Linux distribution. So I installed that. And I did that around 2008, and I've been using that since, well, not Ubuntu anymore, but Linux since then, basically. And this was important <laughs> because it uh, uh, made me discover the, the world of software, and specifically free software and open source. And I became fascinated with the concept of uh, writing codes and sharing it with everybody, and... Uh, and, and, and then having this, this license where if people take your code and they continue modifying your code, then, then they have to reshare it as well with the world. I, I found this fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And I asked my professor at the time, my econometrics professor, hey, what's, what's like the programming language or a free software programming language or tool that is used for econometrics? And at the time... <laughs> At the time, he told me, and you have, uh, so I should, I should say that I studied in France. So we talked in French, obviously. And he told me, uh, well, there's this software called Eth. Uh, he said, Eth. And I said, okay, Eth. Uh, so I went to Google that day and I started Googling it, Eth. And Eth in French means the air around us that we, that, that, the, the air that, that, that we, that, uh, that, that is around us. So I was looking for air, A-I-R, and I didn't find anything. I, find, I found data sets on air quality and things like that. And so I, I went back to him and I asked him, I, sorry, I didn't get it. Is it R? And he said, yes, R. And I started, but R, how do you spell it? A-I-R. And then he answered, he told me, no, no, the, the letter R, because in French, the letter R is R. Mm -hmm. And so he was talking about the R programming language um, that I use still today. And, uh, and the only reason I started using it is what it was because it was an open source and free software language for econometrics. And it was the only one. And even today, it's kind of the only one specifically where you can do specifically econometrics, kind of the only one that is open source. I mean, you could do some econometrics with Python, but it's really not uh, as developed as R. 
And and so that's that's where it all started. I started, I installed it. I started trying some stuff, programming. I I found programming fascinating. Um, I had a programming course in high school that I absolutely hated. I never thought I would work with computers. Turns out that once you have the kind of problems that you like to solve, uh, then it it becomes interesting. So I started programming, and I I said, okay, I need to like this needs to become my job. <laughs> I, I, I love it. I love I love econometrics. I love uh, statistics. I love programming. This all these kind of things. I I just need to 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 work in this. And uh, so again, being um, a bit naive still and not really having the the knowledge and the network around me, I thought I'm going to go into research. I'm going to become a researcher, and I'll be a, I'll be a successful professor in university. Well, I learned very quickly when I started my PhD program that finding a position, uh, an academic position, is quite difficult. And I realized quickly that, uh, yeah, that wasn't in the end, wasn't for me, um, but I still loved programming. I still loved, um, you know, uh, statistics. And that was around the time, 2010-ish, that was around the time where people started talking more and more about data science. So I thought, okay, I, I'll finish my PhD. I started it. I'm going to finish it. It was uh, a horrible experience, but that I would not, uh, that, that, that I would not uh, how would you say that in English? I, I would still do it, even if I could go back in time. I would still do it because it opened a lot of doors. But it was a horrible experience, I must say. But I learned quite a lot, and uh, and then I just you know I just went into data science. I I, I worked some years uh, into data science in a, in a consulting company, um, which was quite interesting because it it made me realize uh, what kind of the business world war was, which I didn't know anything about because I studied economics. Uh, I was then doing a PhD in a you know in a in a university. Uh, my parents and my my network we don't know anyone that was kind of working in business or whatever. But, so it was for me it was a huge discovery again. So I learned a lot there as well. Um, and then then I, I I went work for the public sector um, in part because I was also looking for a better work life balance with my children and my family. Uh, so I wanted something where I knew that, you know, if I had to leave the office at four, I could leave at four and that there was no urgent meeting or some client or whatever that we had to stay at the office until whatever. Um, this was this was really fine until I, I had children. But but then, yeah, I just I just had to stop with that. And that's kind of where I am today. I, I, I work now for the public sector. So as you said, in the Ministry of Higher Education and Research and um, and all these kind of all this path, let's say, um, yeah, it 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 really made me learn a lot of things, and uh, and now I think I am I am where I really need to be. Thanks very much for sharing that really great story. Um, there's actually a lot there's a lot to talk about there. That's that's interesting. I actually did I personally did not know um, about how many Portuguese people there were in uh, Luxembourg. It's true. Uh, yeah, that's it. It sort of makes sense the way you explained it, <laughs> but but I, I wasn't aware I wasn't aware of that history. Um, one thing that 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 story reminded me of was um, uh, the so my my dad grew up in the Canadian province of Saskatchewan where I grew up. Uh, his parents were immigrants, uh, German speaking immigrants from Ukraine, oh, yeah. and um, oh, yeah, German was actually the second most spoken language in this Canadian province um, for oh. a long time. Um, and um, but he he had this experience where like he was you know, in in, in sort of parallel way to the way you were describing where like you know like. Like my 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 grandparents didn't know anything about Canada, right? <laughs> and, uh, so when my dad was applying for his first government job, 
there was a question on the on the uh, application that said, "Are you bilingual?" And of course, my dad his first language was German, uh, mm. but his second language was English, and he was fluent in English, and he knew what the English meaning of the word bilingual was, mm. which was, "I speak two languages." Right. That's not what bilingual means in Canada. In Canada, oh. bilingual means you speak English and French. Oh, right. It, it, the, all oh, other yeah. languages are excluded from the They're linguistic excluded. universe in official Canada. Oh, uh, wow. That's for, for quite in, interesting. Yeah, for interesting historical reasons. So he goes he goes to the interview, and it was it was sort of, you know, they're, they're like, oh, so you're bilingual, and they thought that meant he could speak French. Um, oh, man. <laughs> and he said, no, it means I can speak German. And they were like, there was this kind of like back and forth where it's kind of like embarrassing. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. he didn't go into details, but they, they're both sides are kind of embarrassed actually because, but anyway, no, it is so interesting how like those, you can be in a society and like be living a full full life, but like actually be kind of out, outside of it. Oh yeah. And yeah, at, yeah. The, at the same time, and it sounds like that a lot of your experience was kind of like that. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, so I actually, for a very long time, did not speak Luxembourgish. Like at all, I, I I picked up French very quickly because it's close to Portuguese, uh, but Luxembourg is in German. So Luxembourg is, is linguistically speaking, Luxembourg is a, like a German dialect, but it's the it's the national language in Luxembourg. And for a very long time, I, I didn't speak that. Uh, I I really just picked that up. Like I don't know, maybe, yeah, when I was maybe ten or eleven, which is really late. Uh, I kind of understood when teachers would talk to me, but um, but speaking it was difficult. And even today, I have an, I still have a Portuguese accent when I speak uh, Luxembourgish. Even though now I have the nationality, uh, like I'm a full Luxembourgish citizen, but even like it's it's not my native language. And it, and um, sometimes speaking with people, it's, I have to like translate in real time because it's still not na natural. My my wife is is French, so we speak French at home. Uh, so. I just speak Luxembourgish at work, and it's yeah, it's not it's not the the language I'm most comfortable with. I actually I actually would even say that I now speak English better probably than Luxembourgish. At least it's not so. Um, uh, how would you say it's not so much work? It comes a bit more naturally. One thing that's kind of perhaps sort of, sort of surprisingly come up on the podcast many times in the past is um, different educational systems, um, particularly at the university level. And I actually, I, I don't know if I've ever spoken to anyone who went to um, and the University of Strasbourg. You went to university in France. Right. Um, right. But I'd also like to ask you about university in Luxembourg and if they're the same. I mean, so for example, like in, in, in North America, a typical undergraduate university degree, you take a kind of general year in your first year and then you choose a major. Um, and then you, most of your courses are in the major for the rest of your undergraduate, but you still have what are called electives in other subjects. Mm -hmm. In the UK, it can be very different, where it's just like one subject. That's all you study, um, you know, when you're there. What's it? What's it? What was it like for you in uh, Strasbourg? And what's it like in Luxembourg if it's different? Well, um, it really depends on the university. There are some universities, I guess, that uh, kind of let's say mimic or are closer to the US system. But most of, uh, at least in my experience, and when I when I talk to people, to other students, etc. In most of the time, what you have is that you, for example, if you study economics, you will do economics, like you will have macro, micro, whatever, and you'll just have that. And maybe the last year of your undergrad, so the bachelor's, we call it, so you have a bachelor's, a master's, and then a PhD. So the third year, which is the last year of your bachelor's, there it can be that you will choose some kind of uh, specialized uh, courses. For example, it, in my case, it was quantitative economics. But there were other people that were then doing more more law kind of things. Um, I have a friend uh, that um, 
did uh, actuarial sciences, so more for insurance and things like that. And that was on in the third year. And then, of course, the master's degree, then it's more specialized once again. But the, um, the system uh, that you have three years of a bachelor, two years of a master, and then three years of a PhD, three years PhD in theory, because in practice it's a lot longer, uh, that's kind of now regulated uh, Euro-wide, Europe-wide, uh, oh. through the Bologna process. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, that's... It's, it's, uh, it, it's to make it easier to um, travel, basically. Because in the uh, so in Europe you have the uh, free so people can travel freely so I could literally go to Bulgaria tomorrow and nobody would ask a question because I'm in an, I'm an EU citizen uh, but the problem was that before the Bologna process uh, well your courses your your degree uh, you have a PhD or whatever in economics in France that doesn't mean that you are qualified to work in Bulgaria or that it's the same right so now through the Bologna process this is kind of standardized so if I go to another European country my title will be recognized what automatically basically that's you remember reminding me of something um uh when and i'm curious because I'm, I'm sort of out of date now but um uh obviously but uh i it was it the case at a time in france that like to become a professor in france you just like applied to become a professor and then they kind of told you where you were going if you got if you got through uh well okay I, I didn't know that system at the time because this was already be before my time, let's say. But from what I remember from the discussions at the time, what happened is that you you did a degree at the time it was four years, not five for a master's. So they call it a maitrise. So you did your maitrise that was four years, and the last year, if I'm not mistaken, this is where you could choose between uh, writing like a master's thesis that was heavy research. So your last year was really focused on teaching you research. Or uh, you know having having an internship, a six month internship, and then just going for a job. And so if you went for the, I think they called it the DEA, the DEA degree, um, that was the last year of this maitrise. If you went for that, uh, then you you could do a PhD, etc. And and then once you wanted to become a professor, and this I don't think it changed too much, uh, you would apply. Uh, they would of course. Uh, look at your at your curriculum, etc., and then you had to do um, you had to do interviews basically all over France or wh wh whenever you wherever you were invited, and this kind didn't really change. And then after the interviews, you may or may not get a position. Uh, what I remember from my discussions at the time with my professors is that 30, 40 years ago, it was very easy to get a position because uh, there were not a lot of people with uh, you know phd degrees that wanted to to go uh, to be professors nowadays it's incredibly difficult um and so yeah you, you really have to be uh, lucky but also really really good you have to be really at the top like top one percent minds let's say to get the job in the academic sector and uh, which i'm obviously not so i i thought okay you know what i'm going to do something else where i know i can bring value but uh, yeah unfortunately i cannot uh, compete with uh, some of the mines that were um, that were applying, so I I didn't even uh, try to apply. Um, I'd really like. To, I'm looking forward to asking you about your PhD uh, in a moment. But before we do that, um, you did you mentioned you know coming from a background where you know people weren't really familiar with university and studying yeah. and things like they knew that it existed, of course, right? Important and it was a way into sort of a comfortable life, as you said. Um, but uh, you know, I I you know I had friends who were similar. You know, kind of like just they go to university and they're like, oh my god, like I don't even. I know what school is, but what's this? You know, 
what was that? Can you think of, just talk a little bit about what that experience was like for you? Did you have friends who, who you could talk to? Did were you, were you in like a dormitory or something like that? Because like, like I, yeah. it's funny for when you, when you're, when you're sort of, you know, get older and those things are long in your past, you can, they're, they're, they're the kinds of things that are easy to take for granted, but like for anyone listening, who's maybe 17 or 18 and facing this, like that's right. like hard. Um, right. Right. And so if you could maybe yeah, share a little bit about, if you can recall, you yeah. know, a little bit about how you made it through the first little while. So I was quite lucky because I um, I uh, rented a, a small apartment with a with a friend, a high school friend, that also went to study in Strasbourg, and he had kind of the same story as me, but um, he's not Portuguese, he's Chinese, but he, it's really kind of the exactly the same. They they like his parents left China, you know, uh, because they were looking for better opportunities and exactly basically the same story just replaced portugal with china basically and so he was kind of in the same uh, spot as me um so we could we had each other we could talk with, to each other we we helped each other so that was great and thankfully my uh, older brother that didn't go to uni he didn't go to university but he had a high school friend that went to university and that was finishing his studies when i arrived in strasbourg and he was also in strasbourg uh, Strasbourg is a, is a quite popular destination for for people from Luxembourg actually because it's not too far away, uh, so we can go there by train and you know you speak French so you, know, you can very easily integrate into Strasbourg let's say, and so he was finishing like he was in his last year I think when I started and so he he really showed me a lot of the uh, he showed me around in the city where I should go where I should ask for you know for papers for whatever. Um, in, in France, there's this uh, notion, I don't know if this exists anywhere else, but I guess it might. There's this notion of um, universi universitary restaurants. So these are restaurants that are open all day, but just for students. Uh, and you can go there and get a meal for like two euros. At the time it was two euros. So nowadays maybe a bit more, but it's very, very cheap and relatively high quality. Uh, and so it showed me because I, I didn't know that this kind of thing existed and you no one tells you at university you you just think that there's the the canteen of the of the faculty itself but there's but there are literally restaurants in the city that are not very you know you if you if you pass by them you don't don't even notice that there are restaurants but you can go there as a student and get this this cheap meal so he showed me things like that so thankfully I had I had people around me uh, that were more experienced but only once I I, I went there and uh, and where I was lucky as well was the um, I really quickly adapted to how um, things are taught in university. So I really quickly understood that uh, you had to work by yourself, which was not a problem for me, thankfully. And and actually, I, I really enjoyed the fact that teachers, at, at least in France, but I guess it's everywhere the same, you know, they, they don't care about you. So in a sense, this may seem a bit... Um, a bit weird to like that but it's the it's the fact that they you know they don't tell you how you should work they just tell you okay you have to do this you have to do that and then you do just you just do it and i i found this really really nice because i don't i i enjoyed high school um because i of my friends let's say but i didn't like how how school works like you have to sit there for so many hours and you have to do even basic stupid things that don't make any sense but you have to do it because it's in the program in university if i didn't care about the course i just never went and that it was on me it was my responsibility right and i really enjoyed that and um and so i i was looking that aspect that i adapted really quickly to how things work at university 
And then, because I also enjoyed what I was learning, I also went then to the professors, you know, at their office, uh, knocked on their doors and asked them questions. Look, I don't understand this thing. Can you explain? And they love this. And I also have the, I'm very lucky right now that I also teach a course at the University of Luxembourg in the winter semester on reproducible pipelines. And um, and I love it. I, I just love it when, t when students come to me with, with, with questions because it means they're paying attention. It means they're interested. And, uh, you know, it's a bit for my ego as well. So and that, I think that's why teachers also liked it and liked me as well. And, and they, you know, they, they explained stuff to me and, and it really went well in that aspect afterwards. But I was lucky. I was lucky. I had a good friend um, and he's, he's still my friend, by the way. We've known each other for like 18 years now. And, um, and yeah, and, uh, and I had some experienced people, thankfully, that were there already that uh, were not directly my friends, but they were my older brother's friends. So yeah, that was without them, it would have been, yeah, probably more difficult. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's actually funny. That's a very sort of, um, specifically go talk to your professors is, is, yeah. is this sort of recommendation that I give when, oh, yeah. when I get the chance to people and like, and I, and it's, it's sort of funny, like the way you describe, like, you know, you're kind of, you're on your own at university. And like that, that was exactly one thing I realized right away and loved, like it was exactly what I, what I wanted. Um, right. and in the way, one of the ways I also I try and explain like what, what the difference between university and say school, um, is that like, um, it reminds me of, so I, I've in my, in a former life, I was an investment banker and someone once explained to me, like, it's not a job. They've given you a desk and resources. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Now you, you've got this global company at your fingertips to kind of do things with. Uh, but that, that's the way you should think of it. Not, and, and, and universities like that, like that professor in front of you, I mean, some professors suck and, um, uh, don't, don't, don't forget that. And some, some guides lead you astray. Uh, but, um, you, that's all part of using your head. Um, you know, it's like if you joined a bad martial arts school, you know, you should, you, you it's not your fault. You couldn't know, but you should figure it out. You've got a bad teacher after a while. Uh, you know, same thing with the university and like, you've just got these incredible resources at your disposal. If you have the good fortune to have the time to go and that professor is not a teacher that professor no. is, a, is a researcher who is giving you their time right. um is the way to look at it uh and 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 as you say like they want to talk they it, it sounds sort of all hands off not at all it's You're just right. it's, it's up to you it's up to you to initiate and if you and professors love it when you ask questions but also that that story the great story you told about your your older brother's friend being able to guide you right i can't for anyone who's like starting out in anything like i can't emphasize enough how important it is to like try and find a guide right you know, um someone because even things like you know and, and by the way i suspect that the the sort of like uh making sure there's good cheap food for students is uniquely french um, <laughs> perhaps i, I don't know <laughs> it's definitely not english um that much but uh but um uh that that um uh you know that uh Anyway, it's, it's, it's very important. It's very important to find a guy to like, cause those little details can actually make a big difference in your life Oh yeah, and, and they can really make you feel like you fit in, um, uh, in, in ways. But, but again, again, the sort of the main key is ask questions, right? Which is something you, 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 you write about, um, as well, uh, you know, which is like, ask questions, don't be afraid. Um, the kind of person who, who looks down on you for asking questions, you like, you know, then you get your answer, right. Um, mm -hmm. one way or the other from them. Um, and that can be a really important lesson to learn. So you mentioned your PhD, uh, wasn't the best of times. Um, 
I forget I forget the old joke that's like every family is what was it Tolstoy every family is unhappy in its own way uh, thing like that and and um uh PhDs are like that uh, yeah. not all but most um <laughs> so uh I was wondering actually if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about that cuz you made it through uh, uh, congratulations yeah. on on all Back that um, it's a big deal uh but uh what in what way did yours without naming names in what ways did yours did yours suck well I think it was a combination of, of several things. Um, the first thing was that, uh, and this is, you know, I, I guess it's nobody's fault. It's just how the system is. Um, so I mentioned the old system where before you had like this maitrise of four years. And then on the last year, you could choose, okay, I want to do research. So they spent a year teaching you how to do research. Nowadays with the new system, so we have the advantage that I can travel anywhere and I'm a doctor everywhere in Europe, basically my PhD is recognized, but this also meant that this uh, last year uh, or this this maitrise was axed in favor of the, ma of the master's degree. And the master's degree does not really have this uh, last year where you only do research. Basically what happens is that during your last semester, uh, which would be the uh, fourth semester semester of your master's, the last semester, you either do an internship or you write a master's thesis. So you only have one uh, semester that's like four months, basically four or five months to finally uh, do some research, but you just don't know how to do it. So you have to, in four months, basically learn how to read a paper how to write a paper, how to write a literature review, how to uh, code as well, because the things you're coding are very different from before, because before I was just using stuff that was already existing, but now I have to do research. I have to come up with new things. I have to come up with new knowledge. And that's really difficult, much more difficult than what I anticipated. And I wasn't really prepared for it. And I think it's a bit because of that changing the system. So I'd never really learned how to do research. So what happens? is that you have to do research uh, or learn how to do research during your PhD as you go along. And that might not be such a problem. If they didn't tell you, well, you know, if you finish your first year and you don't already have like a good working paper, then it's really going to be difficult because that puts so much pressure on you. And I did not have a working paper at the end of my first year. I did not even have a working paper at the end of my second year. Only like at the end of my third year did I have like two two kind of working papers. But um, so I, I knew from the start, okay, this is going to be tough. Like I, I will probably not going to be a researcher. And once I realized this, then it went better. I must say once I accepted that, okay, I'm going to do my PhD, going to work on it. I'm going to do some, hopefully the best work I can. Um, but, you know, Forget about being a researcher. Let's let's go to the private sector and let's do other stuff. Once I realized this, it went better, I must say. But the first like three years were a bit difficult because I I realized that I did not have the knowledge to be able to really contribute, and it would take me time to get that knowledge. But at the same time, they told me, well, you have a three-year contract on your PhD. It's a PhD is supposed to be three years. I was at the end of my third year. I had like I don't know one and a half papers or something. And then, okay, I got like a, a research assistant contract at the university so I could prolong that. And then I got a job. So I went back to Luxembourg and I just started working and I worked on my PhD on the side. Um, and and so it was, yeah, it was not easy, but I guess, you know, as you said, uh, like this Tolstoy joke, like 
uh, I think it's never easy. I don't, I don't think I ever spoke to anyone that did a PhD that told me, oh yeah, it was just, you know, <laughs> it was trivially simple. I never, never heard, had that conversation. So I guess it's not so unique, but, um, but in my case, it was really, I, I just wasn't ready. I just wasn't ready to, to do re I didn't know what it meant to do research basically. And, uh, and again, that wouldn't be a problem if you had more than three years, which I think three years is anyway ridiculous, even if you learn how to do research on, in during your master's degree by chance or whatever, or if you're really good, you know, fine. But even then, three years is extremely short to contribute, especially nowadays. It wasn't the same, I guess, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, but nowadays there's so much output out there. There's so much research. If you want to do a literature review on, on any topic, it takes you so much time. You have to read and read and read and read and read and read and then write and write and write and code and code and code. It's really, really tough. So I, I really admire people that have these huge outputs that are able to write two, three, four papers by year. It's, it's crazy. I don't know how they do it. And um, yeah, once I realized that this was not good for my uh, mental health, I just said, you know what, I'm going to finish it, but I don't care about how long it's going to take me. And so it took me six years in the end, finished a PhD. But, you know, now I have it. I'm, I'm happy <laughs> and, uh, and, I have a, and I'm happy in my job. So it turned out well in the end. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that that story too. That's um that's very interesting. Um, uh, finishing a PhD when you're working uh, is a unique form of challenge um, that I've I've had sort of friends go through, uh, and uh, I know I know how hard how hard that can be. Um, it's interesting too that the detail you mentioned about like the system changed yeah. um, when you were doing when you were in the middle of it, and like that's actually kind of like a curiously because the process is so long from undergrad to finishing from starting an undergrad to finishing a PhD. That's actually kind of a normal, a relatively normal thing. And like, it's different, different with different universities and stuff like that. So you, there's like, and like, no matter how resourceful you are, fortune plays a role, uh, in any, in any long-term enterprise. Um, and, um, and that's, and that's actually one of the, one of the interesting things about, about sort of actually completing a PhD is it means that you've, you've probably overcome numerous challenges that had nothing whatsoever, uh, to do with the subject that you were studying, right? Um, yeah. uh, I, I do have to say, I have one one friend for whom it was all just on rails, and he uh, to do mm -hmm. that national, national stereotype. He happened to be German. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just do, do, do. Uh, yeah, that's great. I mean, when that when it works out like that, it's great, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's uh, it's interesting too when you mentioned making a contribution to for anyone who's listening. You know, to to get a PhD, typically this sort of normal line is you know, your, your thesis or your papers or whatever have to make a real contribution to your field. Right. Um, the, the question that begs is, well, how do I know what's in the field? And like, you have to read everything exactly. um, basically and, uh, or, or talk to enough people to get a sense of, of everything. Um, and that's, that's actually one of the biggest challenges. And when you think about why does it take so long? Well, it's not just, it's not just a matter of like writing something. Um, you have to, you kind of have to read everything, uh, in your, in your, you know, narrow, narrow field. Um, exactly. uh, and, and that's one of the things that makes it such a big challenge. And also I, I would share to you that, that, you know, the, um, a similar version of that experience that I've had, that, that you had that, like, you know, when you decided I'm not going to be a researcher, I'm not going to go into academia. So my PhD kind of means something different now. Mm -hmm. uh, a version of that, that I've heard, like not, not, not joking was no one's ever going to read it. 
<laughs> that's also true. <laughs> like, but once once you realize that, like you can be thinking there, oh, like oh, who is that character, Casabon from like Middlemarch or whatever. You know, you can get sort of bogged down in like it's gonna, oh, it's gonna be the you know the the greatest work of genius ever written, and it's like it might be, but no one's gonna read it. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> once you realize that, uh, I mean, like you know, it, it's sort of it's just a way of sort of like because after all these years of doing all this work and getting really specialized in something, you can sort of lose perspective on like the very right. kind of practical matter of like finish, uh, right. you know, which is again, easy to say when you're on the other side of it, but when you're in the middle of it, like that just finish can be, right. can be one of the hardest things, um, uh, which is also true of writing books, um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> as it happens, uh, which anyone listening to this, who's actually finished that long-term process where all kinds of other things were going to, I mean, it's true in everything, right? I remember talking to, uh, an acquaintance of mine when he got his after he got his first book of poetry published he's like i had to go through go through so much to get my first book published and almost none of it had anything to do with poetry oh, oh wow yeah it's, so it's all all the things around it yeah 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 it's it's true of so many different things but anyway so um we're here today to talk uh now that we've talked about you uh, for the first uh, part of the interview we'll move on to the second part where we talk about your your latest book which is building reproducible and analytical pipelines with r uh, or RAPs, which is a term that we may end up using, reproducible, reproducible analytical pipelines. Um, and so, yeah, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, who the book is for. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I tried to not make an easy book. So I didn't want the the book to be too introductory. So that's also why there's like a chapter, one of the first chapters in the book is before we start, here's are the, the things you should know. And if you don't know them, it's fine. Um, go read something else or and then come back. But but you have to know these things. And so the book, I would say, is for uh, uh, some people that are already familiar with some of the concepts that I talk about and that are already com comfortable as well with the programming language R. But, and, and this is also how I felt for a very long time and even sometimes even today, they, they're comfortable with it, but they feel that there's something missing. Like when I when I look at some of the packages from other programmers, some other authors, they do they do amazing things. Sometimes it looks like magic to me. I don't understand how they do it. And I felt like, okay, I want to write something for the people that are kind of in the middle, right? They, are, they know stuff, but somehow they it, the little push is missing to know more stuff. Sometimes it's, you know, you sometimes, again, you have to meet a mentor or you have to, you know, read a book that some somehow illuminates you. And I tried to write a book in that way. I hope I succeeded. And that's why the book is not like an introduction and it's not for beginners, but it's a book that requires people to already know some stuff. And so it's a book that I think uh, should be useful to researchers, but not only, also to people working in the private sector that need to write their code in a way that it can be reproducible. Not necessarily for reproducibility's sake, especially in the private sector, but just because if you set up your pipelines in such a way, then almost uh, automatically you get pipelines that are also well-tested and well-documented. So it's also because I wanted people to write high-quality code um, and well-documented code. So that's why I, I focused so much on the reproducibility part. Even if you're not going to rerun exactly the same stuff, 
in six months or in six years, doesn't matter. It's just that by having this kind of uh, frame or uh, even you could say even restrictions, by having these restrictions that we put on ourselves to work in this certain way, we ensure a certain quality and a, you know certain documentation, et cetera, that goes along with our codes. And so the book, yeah, is for, I would say, intermediary people. Doesn't matter what you do. Of course, if you're a scientist, I think uh, reproducibility there is quite important. But even in the private sector, that's also why I, I always talk, like in the book I mentioned, okay, if you cannot use GitHub, for example, uh, because you work, you know, you're, you're in your company and maybe try to, uh, here's how you can work without, you know, having GitHub, but you can still have Git, for example, just on your machine, or you can set up like an internal Git forge, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah, so the book is for, I would say, this kind of intermediary level users that there's not a lot of content for, I feel. There's a lot for beginners. There's also a lot for experts. That's research, basically, like to go to research papers and or these very you know thick manuals that are super complicated. But the these people that are in the middle, there's not a lot for them. And that's also how I write my blog posts. My, my blog that I started also, like when I started my PhD, so 11 years ago now, I try to write blog posts that are not for beginners because there's already so much there. And it's a, for me, at least, it's a bit boring to write for beginners. I, like no offense to beginners, we're all beginners in something, but it's just like, it's not that what, it, what gives me, let's say, uh, energy. I, and, but writing for that, People in the middle is where I really feel at home. And that's why I, I try to do in the book. I hope I succeeded. Yeah, no, it's uh, one thing. One thing I really like about the book and the way you frame it is um, by saying you talk about the sort of story. If I'm if I'm not mixing up blog posts with your book uh, in my head, but um, you talk about, you know, you sort of had this challenge. Oh, I'm going to be teaching a university course. What can I teach? And, right. um, and one thing you realized was like, actually, there's like, although you're not sort of primarily a coder, um, mm -hmm. this and this is like a really interesting topic to me anyway, but like, because I'm not a, not a coder either, but like programmers figured a lot of procedural stuff out mm -hmm. that's actually really useful and can be applicable in other areas. Right. Um, and that's kind of kind of the kind of one of the one of the ways you use to sort of frame what you're doing here is like exactly. And so and so, for example, um, uh, you know, one of the ways you know I describe you know what what what's this whole computer code thing, and it's like well, it's writing. Uh, first of all, and secondly, um, uh, imagine if you wrote a book and there was one typo, and that meant the, no one could open it, mm. right? Right. Like and read a single word, like you know, like welcome. So now, now imagine that was your challenge as a book publisher, that like right. one typo meant your book couldn't open. You let's say you printed the, you had a print run and you distributed them to all the stores. You had all the you know sort of advanced reviews out, and then no one could open the book. Well, you'd figure out pretty quick some techniques for not having typos, let, not letting typos get through. And uh, you'd probably have a much more sophisticated, technically sophisticated way of reviewing uh, of uh, reviewing and accepting potential changes to what mm -hmm. you've done and things like that. And so when you talk about using Git and GitHub and stuff like that, so Git, for anyone listening, is a version control system, which is a lot better than track changes in Microsoft Word. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and like, and, you know, and so it, it can be, it gets, it's, it's sort of funny the way we divide things up in our minds, like, well, that's programming, so that doesn't have anything to do with this other thing. And it's like, uh, there's whatever you want to, whatever metaphor you want to use about higher level or lower level. No, there's there's techniques for writing and for managing projects that programmers have figured out. You know, if you think about, you know, like a, 
an airplane nowadays has millions of lines of code, millions of lines of code, mm. you know, and it's going to crash if you fuck up. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, so like they there's there's actually lots of really important techniques that you whether even if you're not a programmer that you can learn about managing your work and what you're doing. Um, and so in oh, order yeah. to talk about this, I wanted to, I think, I think it's actually sort of a, the, the sort of most natural way in is to talk about these three words on their own reproducible analytical pipelines. Mm -hmm. Um, so when you say pipeline, you're not talking about the thing with oil or gas in it. <laughs> um, so I was wondering if you could talk for a little mo for a moment for anyone listening, what, what do you mean by pipeline? Right. Well, actually, of course, it's not the pipeline that, uh, delivers gas or oil, but it's the pipeline that delivers data. So you, the idea, a pipeline is um, in in the in the book, in the story, and not just like it's not. I didn't invent the the, the concept. Actually, the the reproducible and analytical pipelines idea that comes actually from the from the UK, from the ONS, from the official uh, from the um, Office oh. for National Statistics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are the ones that kind of introduced this um, uh, this name. And so the pipeline here uh, is the idea or, or is the process by which you start from raw data and then you write a bunch of code. And at the end of that pipeline, you get some product. I call them products. It could be a, a Word document with tables and figures. It could be uh, you know another data set that is clean. Uh, it could be a machine learning, a trained machine learning algorithm whatever, it doesn't matter, something that uses data as an input. And I call them data products. And so this pipeline is, is a bunch of code put together. And uh, it, you start from this raw data that is not clean, that has maybe some problems that you have to solve. And then at the end, this data flows through the pipeline and you get, you get your data product at the end. And it's literally just code, basically. Okay. Okay. Great. So, so the pipeline here is uh, you start with some data and you end up with something. It might be a chart. Uh, it might right. be a Microsoft Word document. It might be a bunch of tables and stuff like that. Um, yeah. And uh, okay. And so then the analytical part is what you do with the data that you start with to get it to the end of the pipeline. Right. So the the analytical parts that would be the um, the 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 analysis itself. Let's say what 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 is it that you put in the pipeline to to kind of make it work to 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 reach the goal that that you have. So for example, if I if I start from raw data and I want clean data, then I have maybe to do some filtering in my pipeline. I have to do some selections. Maybe I need to do some data imputation things like that. I end up with my data. Or if I want to train my machine learning algorithm well in my pipeline in the in the part of the analysis will be to you know figure out my model figure out my my features my algorithms etc cetera, etc cetera. so that's why it's an an analytical pipeline because i'm doing an analysis this analysis can be very simple can be just a chart that's it but maybe it's a very important chart and maybe i need to make extra sure that i know what i'm doing because this chart will then be used by the prime minister for some press conference or whatever and so that's why it's also it also needs to be reproducible because if there is something weird some some and this happened to me numerous times there's something weird in in the figures I produced well I need to be able to go back and rerun the whole thing and make sure I I understand actually today and yesterday we had this discussion with some colleagues uh, where we uh, need to answer uh, so in so I, I work at the ministry and we get questions from Parliament. Uh, like uh, probably in any country. And so we we are producing our statistics, et cetera, to answer the question. 
I did it in R uh, with my pipelines and a colleague as a four eyes check did it uh, in Excel because he's not like a statistician, but he knows how to handle data, et cetera. And so he did it in Excel. Uh, and we mostly found the, the same results just for one table. And I asked him, hey, what did you do for this table? Because it's, I cannot find the same results. So maybe you have like another hypothesis or you did something else, whatever. And he told me, well, uh, I don't know, because Excel crashed and I was I'm not able to recover the Excel workbook. Uh, so I don't I don't and I don't remember what I did because I did so much things. I clicked so much things. So I don't remember. So we don't know. So we're going to go with my results that hopefully is correct, I hope. And his result was not too far off anyway. So it should be fine. <laughs> but just to illustrate that, just like literally today we talked about that. He doesn't know, and he did that yesterday. He did it literally yesterday, and he doesn't remember what he did. And like, and I'm not blaming him; like, it's not his fault. And he's a very competent colleague. It's just that the tool does not allow you to retain that information. It, and so, so, if you lose it, you lose it. That's it. It's um that actually like that uh, you did you did my segue for me that I was going to that I was going to do. Um, uh, it's interesting. <laughs> you, you mentioned on your Lean Pub profile that you're into ancient philosophy and like. I suspect yeah. you've read some existentialism as well, because there's a bit your description of like just the like the like say dealing with Excel. So I when I was you know doing my investment banking job, there was lots of kind of high level financial modeling, which was all Excel, and the way you describe it, like it's actually just a bunch of clicking, um, <laughs> and and you might be you might have been awake for thirty hours, you know, and then you you sort of like give your output, and then you wake up the next day and you're like, I don't remember. And there's, yeah, exactly. there's and and there's no there's no record of the and like there's it's just it was just sort of quite striking to me the way you captured it like there's just no there's no record of all the clicking that you did exactly um yeah. uh and that's really interesting and this is a, like a sort of everyday challenge that and like I think we're now getting to the heart of like the reason one of the reasons you wrote the book is that when you say mid level what you mean is people might be real experts in something but at these processes for yeah. making the thinking about the thing at what are you acting like so for example in my job it was like go model a natural gas you know uh pipeline development project mm -hmm. and it's like okay i'll i'll do something you yeah. know and it'll we'll get there in the end uh but like you know where where'd you start where were you at the middle you know can you do it again i you know i'll just give 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 a give a copy i'll copy give a copy of the file to a junior but yeah. even th even th so just to get like an, it's it's sort of we could talk about it forever but the details of things so for example to avoid the situation that Bruno's colleague had, every time you open Excel file that you're working on, save as a new version and add add one to the end of it. There yeah. should be a, there's, I mean this very seriously to anyone who works in Excel. At the end of your file name, it should be called like, you know, financial model 1.00. Every time you open it again, save as a new version and now it's 1.01. Yeah. Next time 1.02, you know, and then, and one of the reasons this is so important is that a if it crashes you will get the you will have a latest version that worked but b you can actually go back mm -hmm. uh, and check exactly. um and you can easily share them with people and things like that so you can go and like you're going to you're going to have oh shit moments and mm -hmm. at the very least okay, okay at least i can go back. i know that i'm going to have something back there in the trail before my mistake um nice. that that i can come up with and things like that and like it's just but anyway then so bruno's just just a, so bruno's book is like that but like way way better <laughs> but, <laughs> but what, what you're describing is actually some simple version control system you know yeah. the the issue is that you have to do it you have to think about it you have to do it and you have to remember to do it 
And, and that's also what I wanted to explain in the book. We have to remove this cognitive load. You, your brain has to focus on the analysis because that's already a lot of work. All these things like saving these versions, etc., which is great and you should do it. But the problem is there. You, you have to remember if you version control it, well, you have to remember to, to push, right? And to commit, but it's uh, the, the barrier to entry and the cognitive load is so much lower. It's so much lower. Um, and and it works so much better also to handle conflicts. It's, if you work at, at several people on the same file, Git handles conflicts much better than, than any other version control system or, or, or track changer system that, that you could think of. And, and that's also one of the points of the book is I want you to be able to focus just on the analysis and all the rest, let the computer handle it for you. It's, you know, that's super interesting. That reminds me of a very specific thing as well, that the way they like you having protocols actually relieves cognitive load. And yeah. so one, one of the best protocols that we have for relieving cognitive load in our working lives is email, the email protocol. So a lot of people think email, oh, well, something like Gmail or it's my Outlook or whatever. Here's what email is, is there's a structure to it. There's a, an address that something came from. There's an address that something went to. There's mm -hmm. maybe an, a, a copied, a CC'd address that mm -hmm. something was copied. So, but that's an important distinction. It's not the person who it actually went to. It's just someone of adjacent interest. There might mm -hmm. even be the blind copy, which right. tells you something about the relationship between that address and what else is going on. Um, uh, there's there's a copy on your end, and there's a copy on the receiving end. Right. There's a timestamp. There's a mm -hmm. subject line. There's content, body contents, and then there's uh, attachments. And I remember right. talking to someone who, because, you know, when, when you're working in like a big global kind of company on all kinds of complex projects, version control becomes really important. And I actually at one point got to talk to a guy who turned out like a, a friend of mine's brother-in-law actually was like a salesman at one of these sort of okay. companies that sold these big, you know, version control systems. Yeah. And he got, I remember him getting like really like passionate, like I like, like we can get about these things. And he's like, why do people keep using email? He's like, I, I like people will actually they'll they'll do the thing on the system, but then they'll send an email, yeah. um, uh, just to to have their own copy. And it's like, well, because actually one thing I didn't mention was that if you've got if you've got Outlook in particular, you can have folders in your right. email, and it's like it's that whole cognitive load thing. It's like right. there's exactly. so many there's so many ways to to access that memory, or 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 to find that email that you sent. Uh, because Absolutely. of that protocol, right? All you have to do, oh, what day was it? Mm -hmm. What month was it? What folder did I put it into? Who did I send it to? You know what I mean? Like, like what you can see the little attachment thing on the icon on the side. Like right, right. just, just this simple protocol actually is like hugely valuable for organizing information, finding it again, and finding things again is a really important mm -hmm. thing about reproducibility, yeah. which we, now I want to talk about the most important word in you know, reproducible analytical pipelines is reproducibility. And um, that, so that word resonates on a number of levels. Um, uh, one of which people who sort of read sort of the science news might be aware of is that there's been this yeah. sort of thing called the reproducibility crisis mm -hmm. in science, uh, which you talk about. And this actually goes back to the sort of whole PhD thing, which is like, you know, there can be, there's all kinds of pressures to sort of succeed. If you want to, if you want to get a job as a professor outside your PhD, if you want to, you know, get the promotion, if you want to get tenure, if you want to get things like that. So it's a different way of doing it, but there's pressures in the private sector to produce as well. That mean like, just get all the clicking done, get your output and who cares? Right. Uh, but of course there can be situations where you do care. 
Um, oh yeah. So, so with with respect to this uh, this th this concept of the RAP, what what's the reproducibility that you're talking about there? So um, I <laughs> I introduce in the um, in the book in the beginning of the second part of the book I introduce the reproducibility iceberg. Um, so I show how you can you can start at the top of the iceberg and then you can go deeper and deeper and deeper. And this is just to illustrate that um, reproducibility is on a continuum. Let's say. So you can just focus on, so you write your script, right? And your script depends on a certain set of uh, packages. So these packages will provide uh, certain uh, functions that you can use, okay? These packages may require a specific version of R, or let's say R 4.2 or whatever. Now, um, my script, my analysis, or my analytical pipeline maybe is already running on a certain uh, version of Windows as well, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what I explain with this continuum is that, okay, you can just focus on making a script reproducible. So for example, don't use hard-coded paths, absolute paths that only exist on your computer, like my documents, Bruno, data.xl, right? that only exists on my computer. So if I share this file, it's already not reproducible because that person will have to adapt the path and it's annoying. So it's not a lot, but it's annoying. Uh, so I can try to think of ways to not have to do that such that the file, wherever the, the, wherever the file is, it can run. So I can just focus on that. Then I can focus on, okay, but maybe that's not enough. Maybe I should also think about my packages because my packages, they have certain versions attached to them, right? And these versions evolve, these packages evolve. So maybe in six months, uh, the function that I was using maybe changed names or whatever, or in the next version of the package, maybe that function will be deprecated for another one. This happens. These are things that happens. It doesn't happen too much in the R ecosystem, I must say, but it happens. It happens. Um, then there's the R version itself. Um, so there are, maybe my code will run and produce a certain result on this version of R that I have today, but you know who knows in five years. And I actually did, I think it was last year in November, December, I did an analysis where I took all the example codes. So R ships with some example codes that you can run. And I ran all the example codes from version 0.5, which was released, I think in 2004-ish, 2006, something like that. Don't remember exactly now. And I ran them on the the then current version of R. So it was R 4.2.1, something like that. And I and I I, I just tallied the successes and uh, and the errors. And what you see is that of course through time there's more and more successes. But even like a version from two years ago, there there are there is some example code that doesn't run anymore. It's not a lot. But if your pipeline happens to use that specific function, then you know in in the current version of R it wouldn't run anymore, right? So even even with the just the code that ships with R, this can change. So you have to think about the packages that change. You have to think about the language itself that changes. Uh, and this is even more dramatic in Python because there was the switch in Python, and this was during my PhD. And at the time, I was also using Python for a project with German colleagues. There was the switch between Python 2 and Python 3, and it was quite horrible at the time because Python 3 was quite different in many ways 
from Python 2. And so uh, it, it was horrible to, to, to manage both versions. So R does not have a lot of that, but still it has that, you know? So you have to think about packages. You have to think about the R version. Now comes the operating system. If you really want to go, you know, very deep. Well, the problem is that the operating system ships with some very low level functions, low level code and libraries uh, for linear algebra, basically. And uh, these also change. And this is not something that you have almost any control of. So what can happen, and this is very rare, but it can happen, and depending on your application, it may be very important. The same code that runs on Windows will produce a different result than the exact same code that runs on Linux, for example, or on macOS. And sometimes it even produces a different result on different versions of Linux or different versions of macOS. Again, very rare, and usually with certain situations where you work with very large or very small numbers. So this is usually quite complicated for computers, but it can happen. So you also have to think about operating systems. So how are you going to deal that? And this is why I introduced Docker, where I say, okay, if you Dockerize your pipeline, so this means that you are going to encapsulate your pipeline and you are going to ship it with the operating system, basically. Docker, in a way, it's kind of a virtual machine. Um, not exactly, but it's kind of like a virtual machine. If you ship your code with R, with your packages, and with the operating system, such that the user can then run your pipeline from Docker, then you are almost, I say, almost guaranteed that the result is going to be the same. Why do I say almost? Because strictly speaking, your Docker image can also change. So if you build your image today, and if you build the image in six months, because so building an image is the is the process by which you create this uh, Dockerized pipeline. Uh, so if you build it at different dates, it can also ship with different versions of a very low level code. So what you have to do there is you either also use kind of a versioned, ver a versioned version of Ubuntu uh, or Linux, but usually it's Ubuntu. Uh, so you, you either have to use that or you have to use another tool that I don't talk about, um, which is called uh, Nix. So this is kind of a package manager that really allows you to reproduce a development environment to the bit. It's, it's, so it allows you really to have bitwise reproducible analytical pipelines, basically. And this is another, this is a subject of another book yeah. because it's way more complex. Yeah. But if you really need that, if you really need your pipeline to be reproducible to the bit, then there are tools for that as well. And this is used in like high performance computing environments and things like that. Yeah, so that that's that's a really great explanation. And for anyone who might be feeling a little bit lost, I can I can sort of uh, give you a concrete example that that will make sense of make make sense of a lot of this. So. Um, there was uh, so and I'm, it might sound arbitrary, but there, you'll you'll see you'll know what I'm getting at it right away. So, um, uh, in the world of literary archive, archiving, mm -hmm. um, computers rep represent a problem. In the past, when an author died, you got the boxes of papers from their study, and then you had their papers. Right, mm -hmm. and what did you do? Well, you kept them in a dry environment, and you you know made sure that you know there was there was fireproof and and stuff like that. But like you knew what to do. You had a filing system. You went to where the files were. You you maybe you know, tagged them with some kind of like you know this is these are the this, these are related to this novel or this diary or from this year or what have you, and you could you could go to the document, which has a bunch of like characters written on it, and you could find it. 
Then computers happen. And all of a sudden the literary archivist gets a box and there's a bunch of papers in it. And then there's a floppy disk and they're like, oh shit, what, what am I going to do with this? Right. And so, and, and one thing that happened was there was this, if I'm recalling the timeline correctly, around the mid nineties, there was this, with a lot of libraries, they did a big digitization project hmm. where they put all these, all these digital files on laser discs. Oh, remember the big ones? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, but then that got outdated. And so this problem of, and like, you know, and, the, and this is now, this is now not a problem because of the way apps work now. This isn't the problem like it was, but it used to be that like, if a new version of Microsoft Word came out, yeah, your the old Word file you had on your computer, like you might install the new version of Word, it might not have been able to open the old one. Yeah, right. Or if it did, yeah. it might introduce errors. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, you know, if you're old enough, you remember what what this was like. Um, uh, yeah. And and so uh, the 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 one one way you can imagine to solve this, which would be if you imagine you had a container, a sort of digital container where that that Word file came with the version of word that, exactly. that it was written with um uh now and then you'd ask well hmm but you know like how does that work how does that work over time because like computer operating systems change well imagine that container that we're talking about had the computer operating system in it and you're like well then but what how do you run a, one computer operating system on another computer operating system well that's when you have something called a virtual machine um mm. But then like ultimately there's there's some really fancy computer science going on when you get to the sort of what you're calling the bitwise level. Mm. But but anyway, I hope that, that that sort of like example that I'm bringing up of like just like sort of reading ordinary text documents written on computers, this and so when 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 Bruno was talking about Docker, Docker is this idea around these containers. And so exactly. the idea that I was describing, so the idea is that like you're be able to preserve a computing environment over time. And you might be doing fancy data science, you might be writing a novel, whatever. Preserving that process over time means preserving all the tools, the versions of the tools that you were using and the version of the operating system that was running all the tools mm -hmm. as well is, is the real kind of ultimate challenge. Um, uh, but at the, it's, it, one thing that's super interesting about this is that might all sound like very like sort of fancy technology stuff. One of the hardest things about reproducibility is just doing it. Um, <laughs> yes. You know, like, well, oh, really, I have to save a new version and add one at the end again? Really, yeah. every time? No, I'm not. I'm just not going to do it this time. You, as you write you in the will book, regret book future you will want to murder present you if you don't. Basically, it's like doing surgery without washing your hands. Yeah. You just have to do it. You You might be like a a genius brain surgeon, you still have to spend 10 minutes washing your hands before you go into surgery. You Absolutely. just have to. Yeah. I actually read a book on that, uh, the checklist manifesto, I think it was, which they were talking about introducing checklists in operating rooms. And now this like saved so many lives. Now, nowadays, it seems so obvious that you, you have to wash your hands. You have to make sure the tools are there. You have to make sure, sure that it's the right patient. You have to make sure that you are going to operate on the right leg. <laughs> and and but before introducing checklists, so like so many accidents happened because you know people didn't do this stuff consistently. Well, that's no, that's that's true. That's interesting. That reminds me actually. I have a friend who's a who's a, a brain and spine surgeon, and I actually asked him about this once, and he got very serious. Um, <laughs> and he, and he brought up something that you bring up in your book as well. But there's a trade-off, right? Like every minute I'm checking a list, I'm not doing brain surgery. Um, and that means that other patients are getting pushed out. That means I'm not getting more practice, you know, which is very, very important for things mm -hmm. like that. 
Um, and so like that, and that's actually like sort of the answer to the kind of like exasperated question, why don't we do all these things all the time is time. Um, yeah. and, and there are demands, um, you know, that some, the boss might be like, I, I need the output from you at five, the prime minister's giving a speech at five fifteen. Like, you know, there's no, we're not going to delay the prime minister's speech mm -hmm. because, you know, you, you want to clean it, clean your data, like, you know, right. give, give me a result. Uh, but that's where the protocols come in. Um, the better the protocols you have, the less cognitive load you need to devote to things like that, the more sort of like reproducible, reproducible analytical pipelines that you have in your system, uh, the more you'll be able to handle those high stress situations, the more you'll be able to, because like the other side of that is like, you, you, the number you gave was wrong. And you're like, well, you told me I had five <laughs> minutes to do it, but you know, so now we need to issue a correction. Well now, but if you did things properly, even if you made a mistake, you can actually go back and find where the mistake came from exactly and you yeah. can issue your correction that's that's a that's that's exactly that it's 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 also why i i am and i i, I also explained that in the book i am really against and i think it's really a problem that there there's these no code tools uh, where where there's no codes that's the point of these tools where you can click and excel in a way is a no code tool unless you use vba okay but if you just click around there's no code and if there's no code there's no trail. And so, you know, whatever you did, is it wrong? Yeah. Where? I don't know. I just have to start from scratch. And that's also something I insist in the book, the time aspect. Um, I, 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 I write at some point, I remember a sentence, I wrote something like, I know we're in the real world and there's real world constraints. So I'm going to show you how to do the minimum amount of stuff that you really should do, which is use Git. This doesn't take a lot of time if you can and use the RNV package because the RNV package, what it does, once you're done with your analysis, however the quality of your analysis, if you wrote a pipeline or not, if it's just a script or whatever, you just launch RNV and this gives you a file and it's literally five seconds. It gives you a file with all the versions of the packages that were used for the analysis plus the version of R. So if you provide that file to someone, mm. that someone can then recreate the developing the development environment that you worked on using Docker and this file. You can literally put that file in Docker and restore the complete R environment uh, with this file. So I, I say at least just do that. Just use Git if possible and use RNV and put that RNV file on Git so that if you don't have time to go further, if you don't have time to go to mess with Docker, etc., that's fine. But at least other people can take that file and 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 reproduce your results uh, and maybe future you will be able to do it if needed at least you have something uh and um uh, i can guarantee future you uh, dear listeners will uh benefit a great deal from uh reading this book building reproducible and analytical pipelines with r um, i think we've gone into enough detail for this this segment of the of the uh, uh interview uh, and so for the last segment of the interview we always like to talk about if the guest is an author about their writing process and and things like that um and so i guess i'd like to begin with uh yeah so you got into blogging 10 years ago yeah. um uh, and you write a little bit about your approach to blogging, which I found sort of very, very sort of relatively unique, where you said, like, the, one of the reasons I've been kind of successful at it is because I don't care about, yeah. about how many people read it. And I was wondering yeah. if you could talk a little bit about, about that approach to blogging. So, um, the, so, so there, there's two, two things, let's say. The, 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 first of all, I, I did not want to have, like, trackers on my blog. I do, I must say for full transparency, I do have a tracker on the website of my book. 
so that I know if people are reading it, but not on my blog. And the reason is is because I browse the web with uh, and I block all trackers and all ads. So I'm sorry for other content creators, but I, I block all the ads. And 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 people, if you watch like my, I have a YouTube channel. If you watch my YouTube channels, don't hesitate to block ads. I don't get any money from it anyway, so just block them. So I block everything. So I I, I did not put any trackers. I did not want to know if people read it or not. And I and I also don't care because the the reason I started blogging was because I just wanted to have you you mentioned emailing as a way of like keeping track uh, and removing a cognitive load and keeping track of files. Blogging for me is like that. Mm. It's just a part of my brain that I put on the internet where I file things that and and I'm probably the person that reads my blog the most because whenever I solve a problem at work or uh, or I, I write a blog post about it. Here's how I did it. It might be useful to other people, maybe not. I don't care. But I know that I will come back to it sooner or later. And I know that I will be happy to have something written with all the details, all the code, all the all the text, all the story. And and so um, that's why also I don't care, because it's primarily for me. Now, of course, I'm very happy when people read it, when people tweet at me that they read uh, one of the blog posts and that they found it useful. I'm very happy with that. But I I know I literally wrote some blog posts that no one ever read. I I just know it because like the tweets didn't get any likes or any retweets or whatever. Never got anyone commenting on them. But I I've used them, and I keep reusing them. So I'm I'm happy. I'm I'm fine with that. And um, then also it's because I just en enjoy the process of writing just from by itself. I enjoy the process of having solved the problem, and now thinking to me, okay, now let's sit down like for an hour or two and write something uh, to explain the process, to explain it to me. And sometimes doing that, I realize I actually did a mistake uh, or I actually overcomplicated things. Now that I'm sitting down and rewriting it, like I'm trying to explain it to someone else, I realize, but wait, I could have done it that another way, which is way simpler. So I have drafts from blog posts that never made it because I realized that the overcomplex solution that I engineered was just that, overcomplex. And now it's so simple that it doesn't even require a blog post. So this happens as well. And so this whole process for me is um, enough by itself, let's say. So that's, yeah, that's how I, how, how I, how I blog basically. It's, it's, it's like that. Yeah, no, I, one, one thing I found sort of really interesting about your way of approaching writing about your writing, because <clears throat> you wrote this blog post about like, you know, it's been 10 years now and sort of, you know, here's my approach, yeah. things like that, um, is... Um, you know, there's a you know a, a unique challenges to writing in the digital in the in the digital age, right? Um, where uh, you know, um, because you if you want to, you can see reader engagement. And this this the problem that we're going into now. I mean, could you know is worth many many books and many many podcasts. Is um, uh, you know, you can sit there being you can get really preoccupied with how much engagement you're getting. Yeah. Um, I've talked to at least. I've had at least two guests who like got some got moderate success, and yeah. I only say that in comparison to the people with millions of followers, but like quite successful on Twitter. Yeah. And one a couple of them had it turned into a real problem because they'd like write a tweet and they'd be like looking at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Why yeah. did this one get ten thousand retweets and that one got none? You know, Why did so and so's yeah. tweet get twenty thousand retweets and 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 mine on the same thing didn't get any? Right, and right. Um, yeah. another thing you can start doing is uh basically writing to the algorithm right because yeah that, like that and that can that can be oh, a literal yeah. algorithm it can be the kind of um effective algorithm of human 
engagement. Um, but, you know, if you start writing to feed this very particular beast, you know, eventually you be, you become the food, you know, exactly. uh, and, and, um, and that might be good. I mean, I'd love to be more famous than I am, <laughs> uh, you know, but, uh, but um, at the same time, you do have to, you do have to, when you, particularly with writing, um, you know, you can do whatever you want. Uh, but, you know, one thing that, you know, su- there's versions of success that can be kind of uh, not what you set out to do and something that, again, future you might look back on and, and regret uh, that Absolutely. you sort of got too preoccupied with, um, uh, which is a really important, important challenge. And I mean, I hope I hope everyone listening to this faces that challenge of getting too much attention at some point. <laughs> uh, so, but uh, but but um, uh, yeah, no, no, you write you write very well about that. Uh, and one, one thing also that I've spoken with people about is that and they say the same thing you do, which is like. Often the ones, well, I mean, I think you said this, but like, you know, the things that people like the most are the things that are most useful to them. And yeah. what, what, what's most useful? How I did X. Yeah. Uh, you, like, you know, people love that. I yeah, mean, yeah. You know, like my, my, I think, I think we, we don't really use it much anymore, but, you know, we used to post pretty regularly on Lean Pub on, on Medium. And like the most popular post we ever had was like a crazy little hack for getting an EPUB on your iphone if it's the yeah. files too big you yeah know? <laughs> yeah and I, I i totally see why yeah definitely yeah that's that's i also see that my blog posts that have how to in the title i don't write a lot of them but those that kind of are kind of how to's yeah they they get reshared uh, reshared a lot more yeah definitely more and uh, and um you said something where where I, it really resonated with me ah that now i have a blank um yeah, SEO basically feeding the algorithm. So I I never wanted to do any type of S, uh, so search engine optimization, because as you said, it I it it would end up, it would end up like a job. Like oh, I have to write this because that's the hot topic now, and uh, and uh, I want my blog to be featured in the search results on top, and now I have to write about that. So for example, I have no blog post about ChatGPT. Not that I don't find it interesting. I found I find the technology fascinating. But I have nothing to say about it. Like there's much smarter people that know much better things about these LLMs than me, and so read them. But I, but if I was like tracking, you know, trends, oh, now I would write, you know, how to use uh, LLMs and or ChatGPT in R or whatever. And, but I, but that's not me. Like I, if I had used it in my job or to solve a problem, I would write about it. Yeah, you but have, I don't. You'd, you'd have a lot more posts about Bitcoin. Uh... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Um, uh, uh, I, think, I guess um, uh, the second last thing I'd like to talk to you about is so um, for anyone listening, people people who are familiar with LeanPub, so LeanPub is a self-publishing platform. Um, we have lots of sort of really interesting writing modes where you can write in LeanPub. Uh, but we also have an upload writing mode where you can, which we built because people are like, hey, I've got my own way of writing books. Uh, why can't I use all the, you know, interesting in-progress publishing, blah, blah, get 80% royalties features on LeanPub unless I, why do I have to use one of your writing modes? Mm-hmm. So we have this upload writing mode, which means now we've got N writing modes because you, as long as you can provide us with an ebook file, you can publish your book on LeanPub. And uh, you used something called Quarto. Right uh, to to make your book, and so I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about Quarto and like what sort of type of book that's best used for. So Quarto is a relatively recent tool. Uh, I think it maybe two years old max, and uh, it was published kind of to the public last year, 
And before that, it was just like in pre-releases and stuff. And it's a tool developed by a company called Posit. And this company is quite uh, known, well known for their RStudio programming interface for R. So maybe you heard of RStudio. Yeah. That the, so the company behind it is, is Posit. They changed their names relatively recently as well. And so Quarto is uh, a tool that uh, allows you to, it's mostly aimed at like scientific or technical writing, but you could use it to write a very normal, uh, I mean, uh, a document without any any math or any programming because it's um, uh, a flavor of Markdown. Uh, so you write in Markdown, but then you have, they call them chunks. Uh, so you can have a, an R chunk, a Python chunk, uh, or from a chunk from many, many other programming languages. And what happens is that uh, when you compile your documents, so the, the, so you have your, all your Markdown files, all your QMD files, Quartum Markdown files, with all these chunks, right? And when you, you can decide to compile it to ebook, e so EPUB, like I did, and PDF, and what happens is that this gets... So the, your Quarto file that contains the R chunks gets compiled into a PDF and the chunk, the R chunk gets evaluated at compile time. So for example, if that chunk produces a graph, right? So you, you write the code, but in the output, you will see the graph. So this is really great for technical writing because you don't have to copy and paste graphs uh, you know, from from whatever tool you're using, like R or whatever, to Word or even to LaTeX or to or to another Markdown kind of system, uh, you can literally write the code that produces the graph, uh, or the table, or the model, or whatever. Uh, and you can even have like inlined chunks. So, for example, you can write a sentence: um, "Last year, inflation was at." And then after the at, you oh. put an inline R chunk that kind of gets, uh, that, that loads the data from somewhere or computes the inflation rate on the fly from somewhere. And, and then in the end result, you just see the figure. You don't see the code anymore. And you actually, you can do both. You can show the code and the output or just the output, uh, depending on, on the target audience. Um, and so Quarto is really useful because from a single source, for for example, the uh, the source of the book, uh, from this single source, I get the EPUB, I get the PDF, and I get a website. So the website that you can read the book on uh, is also generated using Quarto. Uh, so it's 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 quite nice. Uh, it works with R, it works with Python, it works with Julia, it works with many many other languages. Um, and I think it's uh, it's it's. I mean, it was really nice to to use it to to write the book. And because it's Markdown, it's a very simple syntax, basically. Um, with the explanation already given that you didn't use our writing mode uh, to write your book, um, the last question I always like to ask people uh, on, on the podcast if they're if they've used LeanPub to publish a book is, if when you were using LeanPub there was one thing that had you shaking your fist, damn you lean pub, you know, uh, the whole time, or if there was some magical fee or if you, if there was a magical feature we could build for you, right. can you think of anything you would ask us to fix or build? Well, uh, it, I, I really would have loved, and, and you, you, I think you provide this feature if you use your, your mark, your, your markdown, uh, so Markwa, right. Yeah. Um, if you use your writing mode, which is to push on GitHub and have the EPUB published automatically, like on, on LeanPub, uh, but if, if I could use that with Quarto, so I push and I get my EPUB 
that is generated and that gets immediately like uploaded on Leanpub, that that would be great. Like if I that would be really a feature I, I that I would uh, that I would use definitely. Yeah, that's really interesting. I don't think we've ever had anyone ask for that before. So. <clears throat> Sorry, oh, but I thought I thought that's that's how it worked. No, no, maybe no, we, I'm mistaken. We, we, no, no, no. We haven't. It's a, we have an API that does that, uh, okay. but you have to be using one of LeanPub's writing modes. And so, yeah, the, okay. thing, oh, yeah. We, the thing we haven't been asked for before is if if I'm providing my own EPUB file. Yeah, or, right. Yes, okay, that's the thing. I, yeah, and so, um, yeah, that's really interesting. I'll make a story about that uh, and put it in our discussion queue. Um, okay, great. Because I mean, obviously, you know. Leanpubs for Leanpubs, everyone, everyone's welcome. But um, uh, you know, a lot of our a lot of our authors, whether they're writing about programming or not, are programmers, uh, mm -hmm. and you know, having like APIs that sort of make things like easier um, for them to do is is particularly important. Not 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 even so much because it saves them time, but because just they just know that there's this better way of doing it. And right. if if it's not available to them, that's just sort of like part of the sort of like you know sort of programmer psyche. It's just like oh, you know, just, <laughs> just be frustrated. Um, uh, well, uh, Bruno, thank you very much uh, for taking the time out of your evening uh, to to be on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast, and thank you very much for using LeanPub as a platform for publishing your book. Well, thank you very much for having me, and uh, I just wanted to say that I I really enjoyed using LeanPub because there's kind of no barrier to entry. I can just write, you know, I don't have to write a book proposal or whatever. I just can go. So that's why. So I chose LeanPub. <laughs> and also, the, the, it's a very, very nice and fair deal So the, the, with the royalties. So that's why. Thanks very much. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, yeah, see you maybe for another podcast once I'm done with yeah. my future book that is in my mind. <laughs> Definitely. Right, have a nice evening. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.